Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Reconciliation with Indigenous peoples in Canada requires structural transformation. One essential site of institutional reform is the country's legal systems. In 2015, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada released 94 calls to action. In call to action number 42, the TRC called upon the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal justice systems in a manner consistent with the Treaty and Aboriginal Rights of Aboriginal Peoples, the Constitution Act 1982, and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, endorsed by Canada in November 2012. To understand what meaningful reform could look like, we ask, how should Canada engage with Indigenous legal traditions? My guests on this episode of Open to Debate are Dr. Val Napoleon, Dean, Professor, and Law Foundation Chair of Indigenous Justice and Governance at the University of Victoria, and Dr. Hadley Friedland, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Let's start with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and Call to Action number 42, which calls for governments across the country to, uh, and I'm quoting, commit to the recognition and implementation of Aboriginal justice systems in a manner consistent with the Treaty and Aboriginal Rights of Aboriginal Peoples, the Constitution Act 1982, and the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was endorsed by Canada in 2012. Uh, Val, I'd like to start with you here. What in practice is this call to action looking for? What what, what does that look like in concrete terms? Um, I <laughs> So here's my guess. I, <laughs> I think that people aren't uh, yet able to imagine like a full-scale response. And I think that what you see as a consequence are a range of efforts um, that are maybe described as more incremental. So you see uh, Indigenous law or ind Indigenous justice being uh, taken up in a, in a variety of places and ways. So one for instance, is C92, and Hadley is much more expert on this than I am, which allows Indigenous uh, peoples, Indigenous communities uh, to identify themselves, um, you know, uh, for the purposes of that legislation uh, and to develop uh, uh, their own uh, legal traditions uh, in order to take up their responsibility and um, authorities for the care of their children. So that's one place that's that is concrete, that is active across the country. But it's one slice. I mean, when you think about justice, justice covers a massive number of human needs and um, issues and so on. So, you know, you, you know, on the one hand, it would be almost impossible to do a comprehensive response because it is so varied and indigenous peoples aren't the same across the country. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so, so how do you start? And so what we see are these incremental measures. Hadley, I wanna I want to pick up on, on that idea and, and talk a little bit about what we think about models of inclusive indigenous legal systems. Uh, you know, is a is a unified model possible? Is it is it desirable, even if it were possible, or by preference or necessity, should we be talking about uh, you know a plurality of systems? Um, I think that might be an and or both 
and mm-hmm. and both um, rather than an either or um, question. And and I'm not trying to sound uh, unduly um, Pollyanna or, or or optimistic, but I think I think the reality is we we do live in relation, um, and and Indigenous legal orders are are in relation with state legal orders, and it's highly unlikely that um, in in my view that that there will be a point where there's no relationship what that really the the real question is what that relationship looks like um do we have that symmetrical and respectful relationship um where there's there's deference to decision makers um where, where there's enough understanding um of of those decisions and the principles that they're based on um and and those the deeper values underlying them um, that those conversations can be had um, in in the way conversations can be had um, between between uh, nations now and so on um, and between indigenous groups that we see happening um, or or are we going to continue um, with this this sort of willful blindness on on the state end and the the the, the lack of of legitimation and, and enforcement and recognition on I, for the- I, I see. I, I think, you know, you got me thinking about uh, how folks might conceive of this at a, as, at a basic level. So I want, I want to come back to you for a second, Val, and then Hadley, I'm going to ask you the same question. Um, for, for someone who, who was coming at this from a, a place of knowing nothing about it, uh, you know, if someone who pays a little bit of attention to the news, but they don't think about this a ton, it's not an issue on their radar. We say to them, okay, we, we want to take Indigenous legal orders seriously, um, and they say, "Okay, well, what does what does that even mean?" You know, are, do we are we talking about the federal government and and the constitution? Are we talking about a new way of looking at treaty rights? Are we talking about a relationship between the the provinces and territories, uh, in particular, indigenous nations, uh, particular reserves? I mean, the, the, as as we've talked about, there are so many different ways to conceive of how indigenous legal orders can interact with several orders of, of government, uh, including between indigenous um, peoples themselves, um, you know, how would we explain how, how something this, this big and complicated and multifaceted might, might look like across the country? Because it's not just a federal thing, right? It, it's across orders of government, right? So ultimately, it'll, it'll have to cross orders of government. The question is, you know, how that will happen. I think that there are some I think I think that there are some foundational um, platforms that one can start with. One, the first is that uh, you know you can't think about how to engage indigenous uh, legal traditions without first taking indigenous law seriously as law. This is something Hadley and I talk about and have talked about for years at every workshop that we've done at communities and and every other uh, place that we've talked about Indigenous law. So just, okay, so taking Indigenous law seriously as law, which means that a law of a people, a legal tradition of a people, whether they're Cree or Tsilkotin or uh, Dene, it has to be able to allow those people to manage all aspects of their lives. So family, economy, uh, international relations, um, uh, governance, and uh, you know harms and, and injuries, 
all of the kinds of things that human beings individually and collectively get up to, that's what the law of those people have to deal with. So it's, that's the, uh, the second aspect. The third aspect is that the functions of law, while law is going to look really differently, you know, if you look at Dene as opposed to Dixam law, the, the law, insofar as its institutions and so on, will reflect the distinct society that it comes from. The law still has to fulfill the functions of law. It has to solve problems. It has to provide people with um, legitimacy of authority, legitimacy of legal response. It has to be public so that people can see uh, precedent, so that people can see its logics. Uh, there are, um, it, it has to allow people a, a way into understanding it and engaging with it. And there are institutions through which law operates. Law doesn't just happen sort of outside of human institutions. So the, the, the law then, you know, whether it's organized in terms of, um, you know, the Gixan uh, lineage system with matrilineal kinship groups uh, and clans uh, in distinct territories, uh, and the particular kinds of oral histories that those people have, you know, that's what it looks like. But it has to do the same work of law that a Cree legal system has to do. It has to have the same structures of uh, authorities. It has to have processes for people to reason through and solve problems. It has to have uh, precedent. It has to... Um, you know, you know the structure of it in terms of its legal responses, the uh, obligations and the principles that guide it. All of those things have to be there. Just to give you an example, I took a Gixan feast, which is uh, one of the it's the governing structure which allows the public witnessing and recording of major economic, political, uh, and legal events within Gixan society. I took all of the work done at that feast and I compared it to a trial. And if you, if you look past the ways that people are working and if you look at what is it that people are doing, they are comparable in terms of the work that's being done through those processes. So what we can do is we can say an understanding of Indigenous law needs to include um, that it will start with a full scope of law, that we have to work on a societal legal order of law, not community by community. You wouldn't do it Ottawa and, you know, uh, Michosan or something, right? Um, and it has to it has to have the functions of law, which will mean that the legitimacies of it uh, enable people to uphold decisions even when they don't get their own way. Mm -hmm. Right. So here's another thing for you to think about, just to push this a little bit. 
all of the reasons that law is important for indigenous peoples insofar as our citizenship, our lawfulness, our legalities, which doesn't mean we agree on everything, but we have a legitimate process by which to, to uh, figure out uh, collective responses. All of the reasons that uh, rebuilding indigenous law is important for indigenous people is just as important for everyone else in Canada, and it's just as important for other uh, countries and other peoples elsewhere in the world. What we see happening in the world with the undermining of civility and the undermining of democracy is an undermining of law as a way to solve problems where you require reasoned responses, where you require evidence and so on. You know, part of what we see is democracy in trouble and we see civil society in trouble. So I just want to say that this is a bigger frame than simply looking at what's happening for Indigenous peoples. The experiences of Indigenous peoples are also caused by a larger frame, which is historic, which is economic, which, you know, climate change and so on. So uh the the it's really important to maintain um a, a a dual way of seeing so that you see the indigenous issues but you also see the larger issues in the world that it's connect, that they are connected to i want to pick up on that uh, and, and and go to you hadley specifically with this question of how in a federation like ours we could make uh, a sort of multitude of of legal traditions work together based on, as as Val says, you know, some general basic shared functions and goals. And, and I want to jump ahead to anyone who might raise the the objection that, well, you know, we need one way of doing things in this country as if we don't already have asymmetrical relationships, uh, as if, for instance, different ways of doing law in, say, Quebec. Uh, compared to other provinces in, in, in the federal government. So I, I want to remind people that we already do have asymmetrical uh, systems. Um, but but thinking about it in this particular context, I mean, how would you envision a, a multitude of, of approaches, you know, working harmoniously, coexisting uh, in a federation like ours? Val just gave us a huge frame, um, which is so helpful. So now I'm going to get granular and concrete, if that's okay. Um, Please. And, and I'll, I'll give an example. So we talked about C92. So a lot of my work is around is working with Indigenous communities who are working on identifying and articulating legal principles related to child welfare, right? Like like the 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 heart of you know children are the heart of every community. Family family is a legal institution. We rarely talk about as a as a legal institution in in our society, but we have case law from the Supreme Court talking about families as a legal institution. So. Um, one of the questions that will often come up because these laws are being drafted, legislation is being drafted. This is this is a reality on the ground. Is is I'll is I'll listen to um, a, a a lawyer for for a province, or I'll listen to someone from uh, child and family services say, you know, but what what are we to do? I mean, what are we to do? Um, we have to know five laws plus the provincial act. I mean, how is this? Um, you know, this this is too much. And and the question I, I say back is, well, what do you do? I'm I'm in Alberta, so I'll say, 
well, what do you do if if you find out a child that's from Saskatchewan? <laughs> right. Um, what do you yeah? What do you do? We have um, child welfare is a great great example because we have different child welfare acts right in in every province, every territory, right? And and I say I say what do you do? Like, are you telling me that you have read? Um, I'll just say BC and Saskatchewan because they're on either side of Alberta. Have you read, have all your child welfare workers read the BC Act and, and the Saskatchewan Act? You know those backwards and forwards. Uh, I'm not even sure social workers know <laughs> their own parental act backwards and forwards. It's, it's a lot of boring uh, legislation. And they'll say, well, no. And I say, what do you do? And, and they say, you know, number one, we have policies and procedures in place um, of, of what you do when you find out a child that, that maybe you apprehended in a crisis situation in downtown Edmonton, Alberta is actually a child that is here from BC um, or, or from Saskatchewan. Number two, we pick up the phone and we call someone. And, and we call someone who's an expert um, from Saskatchewan or BC and of those acts. And we ask them what needs to happen. We have one of your children here. We've, we've acted um, as is humane and, and legally correct um, to, to swoop up this child in a crisis. Now what? And they defer. They follow their policies, and they and they largely defer and and discuss as as um, equals, for lack of a better word, what what needs to be done for this child and how that jurisdiction will work together. There's there's agreement signed between almost every province in in Canada um, that sets out how this works, you know, um, and and those recognitions. So. Once I say that, I say, so you already have the skills. Um, you, in fact, already have procedures in place that could be adapted and applied to um, if you, if you, if this child, rather than being a Saskatchewan child, um, is a child from Cowichan in, in BC or, or from Cowessis in Saskatchewan. Um, you just have to start looking at Indigenous governments as governments. I'll stay with you for a second, Hadley. Uh, does does the idea that we ought to be uh, on a nation-to-nation footing as a rule in this country uh, condition that? I mean, is that part of the answer? Is that, okay, well, ultimately what we need to do is, is adopt that nation-to-nation perspective as a rule, and that ends up being a useful kind of heuristic for thinking through how these orders might might be um, uh, executed in practice. Is that is that a core part of it? Because I know we hear nation to nation all the time, but I'm wondering what that looks like in this context. Yeah, I mean, I I think you you for me hit the nail on the head there, um, where where it's it's that respectful interaction. Um, where there's an assumption um, that that the other government is being reasonable has, you know, in the case of child welfare, the best interest of the child at, at heart in the case of other areas of law, you know, um, that they're following guiding principles and that, and that you're having that discussion at that level and um, not necessarily understanding every, every granule difference um, or, or necessarily needing to, um, just needing needing to have um, sometimes in law, um, we, we talk about comity um, that 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 uh, conflict of laws too complex to go into here, but 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 there's sort of a principle of comity where where you assume 
a, a court in another jurisdiction, unless you have evidence to the contrary, you assume that they, they've they made a legitimate decision um, and, and you defer to that. Uh, I want to, I want to once again, look at the, at the, bigger picture and, and Val in an episode of everyday reconciliation of, of past podcasts in Canada 2020, you said it, I'm quoting, there's no intact indigenous legal order ready to spring to life anywhere in the world. The law has to be rebuilt. And, and that th- those lines really resonated with me. They really stood out um, because it really speaks to the fact that the, the, the work that's being done is the work of building something from the ground up, something that has been dismantled and, and stolen um, through past and present colonialism, uh, because for folks listening, I mean, it's important to recall that the the that colonialism isn't just a history; it's an ongoing um, reality, an ongoing structure. So, I'm I'm curious what the what the rebuilding of that law ought to look like, or is or is looking like on the ground right now. How how should rebuilding these orders proceed? It's work that we're doing um, already and have been doing for years. You know, uh, we have uh, here the Indigenous Law Research Unit. We work in partnership with Indigenous peoples across the country. And then Hadley has now established the Wakotuan Law and Governance Center at the University of Alberta. So the other part of that, I probably would have said something like Indigenous law hasn't gone anywhere, but it's been undermined. Right. Mm. And it it isn't intact, but it exists in how people understand their obligations. It exists in the stories and oral histories. It exists in the um, the different uh, processes that people uh, continue uh, that are live today. The Gixan feast I mentioned, there's all there's other uh, institutional processes all over the country that people engage in and have done, uh, you know, since the beginning of time. So there's all of that is still there. And um, so it's drawing on the legal resources of the past, you know, systematically and critically to look at how do those resources and the forms through which law and authority operate, how can that be articulated so that it enables people to solve the problems of today? So in a way, what it does um, is it makes real the the rea- you know the the fact that law is always an intergenerational conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Law is always taking from the previous generation for the next. And that process of, of drawing on the, the legal resources, whether they're oral histories or whatever they are, like that is a process which uh, is iterative, it's critical. We work directly with communities. Each project takes about two years. We have um, the the uh, idea is that we engage and support communities who have identified areas of law of their law that they have questions about and that they want to work on. We have uh, had projects with on governance. We've had projects on uh, uh, human rights and and gender. We've had projects uh, with family law, with uh, water, with um, lands, uh, 
um, you know, the most one of the most recent projects was with the Nicola, which is a community in the interior, which has been impacted unbelievably by climate change. They've had the atmospheric rivers and flooding. They had roads and bridges and everything washed out. They had fires. So and and then they had drought, right, that caused the fires. And so they're in a position of thinking of asking questions like, with the uh, with the water that is available, do they put the fires out or do they save the kokanee? Right. These are horrible situations that indigenous communities who are on the front lines insofar as those what climate change is doing. These are the kinds of decisions or spaces that people are in, and so they're looking at. How can we solve these problems? How can we draw on the, the knowledge, the historic knowledge, and, and figure out ways forward in a way that reflects who they are as peoples? So this is work. It's going on now. It has been since 2012, um, uh, sort of sector by sector, community or you know, group by group. Um, and uh, it's um, you know, there's lots more to do, um, but it is work that's doable. And there's also, there's more than one way to take up this work. Like we have a colleague, for instance, a wonderful colleague at Dalhousie, who's, who's Mi'kmaq, who's looking at how to re rebuild and articulate Mi'kmaq law um, by, and, and to do that research through, through the language linguistic uh, methodologies. So, so I mean, this is what's really exciting is that there are people taking up all aspects of this work in different ways, in different places across the country. You know, um, most of that work is invisible unless you know what to look for, unless you know who's doing what, or, and you talk to people and you see what they're doing. I mean, it's, um, you know, I, I don't want to be, as, as Hadley said earlier, I don't want to be a Pollyanna either, because it is hard work. There's lots more to do. People are under-resourced. One of the things with the TRC is that now everybody, including different governments and UNDRIP and everything else, everybody wants to talk about Indigenous laws. They don't know what it is. They turn to under-resourced Indigenous communities. So I think that every time any government or any group goes to an Indigenous group or community and says, tell us about your laws, that they first find ways to support those communities to do the research that they need to do to, to, uh, to have the kind of rebuilding that's necessary for the symmetrical relationships that are the future you mentioned learning, and I'm glad you did. Uh, Hadley, I want to ask you about this first, but I, I want to hear from both of you on this. Uh, in 2016, uh, you co-wrote an article about storytelling and how it can be a tool for learning about engaging with Indigenous legal traditions, um, which I, I found uh, illuminating, and people can access it um, online, and, and they ought to. I mean, how how, how does that work? How, how can storytelling be a part of that, that learning um, journey? Um, yeah, I mean, this is one of our favorite subjects to talk about together. Um, uh, I, I think you're probably referring to our McGill piece. We mm -hmm. there's sort of a trilogy, and I think that's the one. Um, and and I think um, where the base of that came from, I think we talked about that in that article, is just 
observing and having experienced stories being used um, as as ways of thinking, of ways of instructing, of ways of correcting, um, and then taking, bringing some of the methods um, we used in law school um, and applying them to stories much like we we apply those skills to the stories we call cases um, in the common law um, to be able to do um, a deeper analysis. So sort of starting with a deep analysis of an individual story with a focus on a particular problem, um, bringing a question to the story um, rather than, as Val said, rather than that just broad, tell me about your law, um, asking those specific legal questions and then then looking at multiple stories um, and bringing those together and doing that hard work of law of of analysis and synthesis to to have um, to be able to see that range um, of of possibilities for decision making for problem solving um, for 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 maintaining safety for resolving disputes things like that um, and I think that's that's I mean. I love stories. It's my favorite. Um, but but one of the things that we find too is 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 that there is a lot of pain in communities. Um, these are hard hard issues, you know. Um, and and being able to talk it through with a story, um, and think it through with a story also gives people a way to to engage with these issues a little outside of themselves and the immediacy and urgency. Um, of their of the the present issues, but to be able to step back and say, okay, here's here's an enduring story that's been passed on for generations. What are, what are the important things from that story? Val has this wonderful article from 2007, written with some other people, talking about um, looking at at how people what people do and how they view their obligations, and then asking those questions of why and where that's coming from. And people are able to do that through the stories and sometimes they're able to connect up and say, hey, you know, here's a story, you know, um, it, it's, it might be a couple centuries old and sometimes it's, it's much newer, but here's, and, and maybe here's a story about, about a bear and a child or an owl and a child or, you know, all sorts of different um, elements that may sound a little fantastical or difficult to understand today. But but what's happening? What's the 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 principle underneath the practice matches what the elders have been telling us to do in this situation, and and we're able to understand and make that that deeply rooted link um, in in a much in a much deeper way. So th those are those are the really exciting conversations um, in doing that work with communities that when when they start to to connect those and and we we basically get to sit back and watch teaching happen <laughs> so one of my current favorite stories is called otter man it's a Dunisa story from north uh the northeast of the province of bc because sometimes what people miss is the complexity of the story itself but also the complexity that it the kinds of problems that they can solve so otter man is a is a one paragraph story about a Denisa woman um, going away with Otter Man and having children that are half otter and half human. And then she loses touch with her family, <clears throat> but her brothers contact Otter Man through dreams, and then they, they reunite and the children are brought into the community and accepted. So 
I looked at about 100 Denise stories, looking at a question about how people live together across difference. And so two of the principles that stand out from doing that work um, of you know, 100 uh, stories was when you meet another people, you assess whether they're dangerous to you or not. And if they're not dangerous, you have an obligation to uh, to set up that relationship and then to to live together, right? Separately, you can you can live together separately, but you have to figure it out. Mm-hmm. If there's a continuing danger, then you have an obligation to recognize that, and then you have an obligation to protect your families and your communities. So each of those situations, there's no easy way forward, right? There's a lot of thinking and talking and deliberation that would have to go on in order to see how those principles apply to perhaps um, a hydro dam being built on the river or other major things going on. The point is, is that there's um, there are these principles and what they do is they provoke um, deep reasoning and problem solving. They deepen the conversations and, and they, they allow a fullness of complexity so that people shouldn't be looking for easy answers to complex problems. And, and as you mentioned, I mean, you know, European legal traditions are full of stories themselves i mean we and and that that approach is is also embedded in those those traditions i um if we sort of push ourselves to to think laterally a little bit we start to see similarities if we can get past um you know what something looks like on on the surface the 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 article i referenced by the way is an inside job engaging with indigenous legal traditions through stories which you can get at um online at mcgill very very easily if you look it up and, and i recommend that that people do uh, val i want to play off of this and and ask you a, a related question uh you know duncan McHugh has a book coming out in in the spring of 2023 called decolonizing journalism a guide to reporting in indigenous communities it's something i'm going to pick up um, because we have a problem in this country uh, with the way that that media reports on, talks about, thinks about indigenous peoples and indigenous communities, and I, I would assume that problem exists in other spaces too. I mean, I know for a fact it does. I would assume that it exists in in, the, in legal relationships as well. And I'm wondering how you would would instruct someone who who doesn't have experience with those relationships, who who's entering a community. Uh, and, and wants to work on on building that that framework out, but may not know where to start. I mean, are, are there particular ways that they ought to be engaging? Early, you mentioned that, you know, resourcing folks is is one way. Um, are there others? With regard to um, your question about decolonization, I, I know it's a useful term, and lots of people really like it. I've stopped using it because. What I think we need to do is uh, imagine who we are beyond colonization, beyond reacting to colonization. Like So it's it definitely, we can't ignore it. We have to deal with it. But let our imagination of you know, who we are legally as a people uh, in relation to Canada, in relation to each other and so on, let that imagination be beyond colonization and the strictures of it. 
So insofar as um, how does one begin learning, um, you know, in with the research center, um, we work with communities only by uh, invitation. We don't go and we never go and we ask people to tell us their laws. Imagine going to your household, your grandparents' household or something, and, and having somebody ask your family to tell them all about Canadian law. Like, how far would you get? Right. So so that's that's not a starting place for a helpful, helpful conversation. So what you do first, or what I would encourage people to do first, is to who are these to, to learn, like, who are the people? There's lots of information available about pretty well every part of Canada. Um, and what are the concerns? What are the histories? What, um, you know, in for every report that we write, we put together what, what we call a primer, which just introduces these people. So that when thinking about the questions of, um, you know the the legal questions for for their traditions that there's there's a logic to it so that you can contextualize how otterman fits in with a larger way of understanding the world or other stories how they fit in so so you do some you you have to do a lot of homework and you can't rely on indigenous people to do it for you um, so, you know, that that would be a starting place. There's obviously much more that would have to be done there. But the other big piece of this is to uh, interrogate power. We are all engaged in relations of power. Not one of us is outside the relations of power in this country or anywhere else in the world. And so how are we an inter intricately uh, a part of that? And and how does it work? How does how does the power that I hold, how does it work in the relations that I'm a part of? How does the power that you hold uh, enable you to uh, to be uh, and do what you do? You know, I heard a, a non-Indigenous older man here uh, come to the realization that as a white older professional male, he had come to be used to the fact that when he walked into the room, most people would agree with him, right? It was an, uh, an experience that he had, or a, an aspect of who he was, that he had been entirely blind to his whole life. And so, I mean, that's just one example, but there are many other ways, whether it's through our education, through our wealth, through our experience and so on, um, but also the institution's power, like so, whether it's you know social services, um, whether it's uh, institutions, prisons, whether, whether it's courts, like uh, the police, I, like all of those, there are there's power that are part of those institutions. Figure it out, think about it, right? So, and what will that power look like from another perspective? If you had no education, if you had no power, if you weren't able to talk the language. What would that institution look like? So there's a lot that people can do before even talking to an Indigenous person. I'm so glad you brought up power because one of the significant deficiencies in this country, uh, particularly in media, is uh, a studied refusal to talk about power, uh, just like there's a studied refusal to talk about class. Um, which which irritates me to no end. So I'm very glad you brought that up. And and I'll say to people, I often say this, um, you know, it's there are things we don't know, 
And then there are things we don't know we don't know. And it's incumbent on us to do work on both of those fronts. And the you know, things you don't know, but you know you don't know them is slightly easier because you can go look it up. Uh, the things you don't know that you don't know is slightly t- tougher because you've really got to sit down and think and push yourself and say, okay, what what are the what are the aporia in my life? What are the corners I haven't interrogated? What are the are the thoughts that I haven't even thought? And how and might I chase them down? I, I confess to coming to an understanding of, of some of these things sort of fairly late in life, especially on indigenous politics, which I didn't really even think about a ton until I was doing my master's and I came across a class where I had, you know, come into the works of, of Kira Ladner's works uh, by way of Michael Orsini. And, you know, that started a journey. And then I went to UBC and all of a sudden I was in the midst of all these folks talking about it. And then I realized how much that I didn't uh, know and how much I didn't know that I didn't know. Um, we're running up against time. So I'm going to close on this question to you, Hadley. You mentioned uh, Bill C-92 earlier and, and Val did as well. Um, and you were taking a concrete approach to here. here's something that's being done on the ground. Uh, are there any other efforts municipally, provincially, federally, bills or otherwise that you look to right now and say, here's a good example of how this is this work is being done. And, and here's a good example of how we ought to be doing more of it. I, I think there's there's so many examples um, within Indigenous nations. Um, so Indigenous nations um, really um, are are approaching the trouble spots, um, these wicked problems that that colonialism and class and racism and um, and and power has 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 created, and 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 coming up with tools and ways to to practice and apply. Um, legal principles to these pressing problems, and so so that there there's really a myriad a, across the country. There there are the land codes. Um, there the even um, to some extent impact benefit agreements. You'll see this built in, and and I think what we see is is where there's space. Um, you will see Indigenous nations acting courageously and creatively. And, and in a principled way um, to stand up their laws and and, and ensure um, they do the best they can to address some of these issues. Hadley's right. There's just hardworking people um, just got their heads down and doing the work. So, but I want to mention the the Carrier Sakani uh, health uh, folks. You know, in the north part of the, the central uh, part of the province, um, these folks, Carrier Sakani folks have built uh, a, a health structure around all of their communities and every single one of their members. And it's one of the most sophisticated, well thought out programs, that, series of programs that I've ever seen. It's taken them 32 years of hard work by mainly women in those communities to, to build this wraparound health approach for addictions, for mental health, for children, for families, and they have medical doctors, and they have uh, every other kind of uh, support. And they've they've they're tenacious, and they've been building that. And that's the kind of thing that people have been doing that are that's so often invisible to the rest of Canada. But you know, the Carrier Sakani, I look at them, and I'm just humbled by what they've been able to do. 
Thank you for that. That's that's a, a very good note on which to end because I, I again recognizing that the work is being done often by people who aren't out there waving their hands telling you that they're doing it because they're busy doing it. Uh, it's it's nice to be able to to recognize that and to share it. So thank you again. Thank you to to each of you for joining me. I, I appreciate it so much. Okay. Bye. Thank, thank you. you. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrah, who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. We look forward to seeing you back here in a few weeks. Thanks for listening.